This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. Welcome to Hangar Talk. I'm David Tulis. I have a special guest with me co-hosting for us today is a Cessna 140 owner, Colin Stagnito. Welcome, Colin. Hi, David. Thank you. And before we get to the news, uh, we're going to run right through our special guest. It's Megan Huerta. We're going to let folks know that she's a young female aviator and an A&P apprentice out of Florida. She's going to tell us a little bit more about how she got started in aviation and some tips for others to get going at a young age. Are you ready to do the news, Colin? I'm ready, David. Let's go. All right, we're going to have an AA wrap-up out of Texas. A bipartisan bill has been introduced to keep the FAA running during a government shutdown. Legato's on the financial hook for 5G GPS interference. And there are some new electric aircraft on the horizon. Sounds good, Colin. Well, let's get right to it. Let's talk a little bit about your other hats that you wear. Let me introduce you also as a AOPA pilot and flight training magazine editor. That's right. That's my day job. Yeah, and I know you love it, but you also love uh, spearheading this special project that you are going to tell us about because we have got you on the air. What is going on with the AOPA sweeps Grumman Tiger? Well, the Tiger is free from captivity soon, I hope. I can't wait to fly it. As members know, we picked this airplane up in Boston in February. I flew it back to Chicago. It's been at JA Air Center being resurrected, really. It's a great airframe, but it needed a lot of detail improvements. And we are deep into making those improvements, starting with a factory rebuilt engine provided by Air Power. And the other huge transformation is we tore out the old instrument panel and we put in a brand new panel and it is stuffed with Garmin avionics. It is a a G3X glass panel. I can't wait to show members when we start flying it around here any day. I'm hoping this week. I'll bet, and you're you're on the hook for that. We're gonna hold your feet to the fire. So Colin, I know you've written about this because we're following along uh, with anticipation. How many pounds did we save when you yanked all the old stuff out of that panel? Uh, About 60 pounds. Uh, Wow. 35 from the avionics and, and wiring and about 30 from the vacuum system. That's incredible. And now, now, like I said, we're holding your feet to the fire because <laughs> the, the, the airplane's got to make some appearances pretty soon. Where are you headed next? Well, really, really soon. Uh, ultimately, the goal is we have to have this aircraft at AirVenture. I can't wait to show it to thousands of members at AirVenture. 
Uh, if the timing works out, one thing that we haven't gotten to yet, and one of the, the most requested upgrades is to fly it down to DeLand, Florida, where MT Propeller is going to install an electrically controlled constant speed propeller. What's that going to give us? Well, you know, it's going to give us primarily, it is going to give us three things. It's going to give us a, a better uh, climb rate. We're going to get off the runway faster and climb better. It's good for fuel efficiency. We'll be able to, uh, you know, cruise at a lower RPM or, you know, cruise faster if we want to burn a little more fuel. So okay. a lot of flexibility with this constant speed prop. Outstanding. Now, I'm going to remind folks who are listening, our loyal Hangar Talk listeners, and we have more than one or two of them at this point, that, uh, that they can get on board and they get, a, they get an entry if they're an AOPA member. And they can get more than that uh, with automatic renewal life membership. Or, and this is something I didn't realize, you don't even have to be a member if you download the alternate entry form. That's right. You do have to physically mail it in and you do have to be a pilot. Well, being a pilot would be good and being an AOPA member would be even better. I so totally <laughs> agree with that. Every pilot should be an AOPA pilot. There you go. So we'll uh, we encourage them to uh, be members, do the automatic renewal and look at other ways to get entries for that. And look, you, all, all you have to do is go to aopa.org slash membership slash sweeps to find out more about that. And they can keep up with you that way too, right? Yes. And, and please, if you're coming to Oshkosh, please come by the AOPA 10. I would love to give you a tour of what could be your next airplane. Well, speaking of Oshkosh, before we get to the news, Colin, let's talk about a couple of uh, news items with Oshkosh, with AirVenture. And, uh, you know, it's looking to be bigger and better this year. There's a whole lot of interest in uh, aviators getting together at, you know, at the big party in uh, Wisconsin. But if you're going to fly up there like you and I have done before, there are some changes to the EAA AirVenture NOTAM that will be in effect. And there was a, a pretty lengthy webinar I participated in the other night that explained some of them. Now, you've flown in there before. Have you done that Fisk arrival? Oh, yes. I've done the fiscal arrival, Fisk arrival many times. I, I happen to live in Chicago just for a few more months. I'm moving to Frederick, Maryland. And sometimes I do the Fisk arrival twice a year, uh, flying into AirVenture, fly home in between. But, you know, the Fisk arrival, some days it can be very calm and, and uh, it's easy to get in. And then other times it's just a hornet's nest, uh, particularly if there's bad weather with everybody wanting to fly in at exactly the same time. Exactly. And exactly. Holding has been difficult. Sometimes I've gotten so frustrated. I've, I've landed at Fond du Lac to wait it out. Once I even flew home, home I was just so frustrated. And so I, I came back the next day. Well, the webinar was really good, Colin, because it showed us some, some visual points that we could look at when we're planning the flight, when we're flying around, and I think that's going to be really helpful for folks coming in from that direction. But listen, the, uh, an important thing is that there are, going to be see, there are going to be several new ATC assignable transition points as folks approach with, um, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, from the West that will supposedly ease some of that holding and congestion. Did you read up on that a little bit? I did. And, and I think it's just a terrific idea because although I think we, we would like to think that every pilot reads every rule and, and every part of the NOTAM, the reality is a lot of pilots make the mad dash to get in, in the Congo line to go up to Fisk and it doesn't always work out great. And I think the idea of putting these new approach points is going to, um, you know, ease the flow into AirVenture. At least that's the idea. I have faith that, that it's been thought out and it's going to work. All right. So some of those new transition points to, to look for and listen to are 
Endeavor Bridge, Puckaway Lake, and Green Lake. And the interesting thing is, it, is that pilots will, will hear them announced on the arrival ATIS when ATC puts them into use at times during the heaviest traffic flows. That makes a lot of sense. It's going to be easy to check. Uh, it's pretty flat up there, so you'll get ATIS from a long distance away. All right. Well, let's move on from that to some items in the news, and let's start with the AEA wrap-up. This is the Aircraft Electronic Association's International Convention and Trade Show, where a lot of new products and product updates were announced, and there are several that we're going to jump into real quick. Colin, you know a little bit about the MyGoFlight HUD. Yeah, the uh, MyGoFlight has been has been developing a head-up display for smaller aircraft for some time. In fact, Tom Horn flew behind one in a Cirrus SR-20 uh, two or three years ago and, and thought it was really, really an interesting concept uh, for, for a head-up display in a small aircraft at a, at a fraction of the normal cost of a, let's say, up to a half a million dollar head-up display in, in light jets and, and, tr- and other turboprops. Um, so he, he loved the idea. It took a little while, but, but uh, what my GoFlight announced at AEA is that they received FAA supplemental type certificate approval for both the SR, uh, Cirrus SR-22 and the AirTractor AT-802F fire boss. And these are water bombers used in fire suppression. So a great utility. And think about it when you're flying, you know, well, I've never done it. I'm, I don't think you've done it, but if you're, if you're putting, if you're fighting fires and you've got a lot of smoke, it's uh, it's very difficult to see where you are. This is going to help with orientation. Um, and there's even a supplemental package, an infrared package where, where the pilot will be able to see where the fire is through the smoke and the haze, really helping to pinpoint. Oh, that'd be super valuable, extremely valuable. Yeah, and uh, from a safety perspective, uh, anything we can do to enhance safety, I'm all for that. Absolutely. Well, let's move on to uh, uh, one of the uh, other announcements that occurred during the AEA. And uh, GoGo, which uh, happens to be one of our sponsors occasionally here on Hangar Talk, but GoGo Business Aviation reported that the Advance L5 and L3 in-flight connectivity systems have reached a couple of milestones. They're now installed in about 2,000 business aircraft and have flown nearly 600,000 flights. And all this occurred in the last few years. And the interesting thing about this, a tie-in for um, GoGo, is that I flew the other day in a Cirrus Vision Jet, an updated Cirrus Vision Jet, and it also had Wi-Fi aboard powered by GoGo. And don't forget, Colin, GoGo works all the way down to 3,000 feet. So it's within the realm of, of a lot of us, uh, you know, lower altitude pilots. As well, well. I was going to say 3,000 feet for my Cessna 140 actually sounds like a high altitude. Uh, for you, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. I like that. But that's, so, uh, um, that's a great, that's uh, really helpful for sure. Yeah, and a lot of fractional ownership fleets, charter operations, folks like that will be very interested in in-flight Wi-Fi because it could be very helpful to folks who, uh, not just passengers, but also to pilots when it's appropriate if they need to check things, uh, check out things via Wi-Fi, um, it's always a good idea. And let's go from uh, GoGo to you have some news on Apareo. Yeah, they have a, a really interesting 4K airborne image recording system uh, that they had they had announced. And you know, even so, so what this does is this records high definition video, pilot intercom and radio audio, and detailed flight 
parameters, including altitude and ground speed and vertical speed. And you can actually retrieve this data through cellular networks. So you don't even have to take it out of the aircraft and plug it in to anything. Uh, you, can, you can download it through cellular networks and then really analyze your flight. So I think it's a really terrific tool. And our, our listeners are going to want to know how much it costs. The answer would be $12,500 and it can be installed in one day. So not, not necessarily super cheap, but also probably not solely uh, intended for an individual owner. It's really targeted toward fleet operators. Yeah, keep, in, keep a handle on the parameters of the airplane, how, how the engine's doing, how we're babying things. And, you know, and really, if you're, if you're doing a lot of safety reporting and, and have a, a management system that really helps folks know how people are flying and you can keep an eye on them. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on to that. To one other thing that I wanted to um, advise our listeners about, which is a pretty interesting story that Jim Moore did. Steam to digital swaps are really popular nowadays. We were talking a little bit about that with the Grumman sweeps, the Tiger sweeps airplane. So Colin, we removed about 60 pounds of uh, old <laughs> avionics from that Grumman uh, Sweeps Tiger. Now, did you, you put some thought into a couple of the instruments that were going to go in there electronically, and what did we come up with? Well, you know, we had two choices. We were talking to Garmin about putting a Garmin panel in the Sweepstakes Tiger, and effectively, we came down to two options, the Garmin G3X Touch or using GI275. These are these three and a quarter inch round electronic flight instruments. And they, they can be, they are an option of either having an attitude indicator or an HSI or an EIS or a multifunction display, or you can put all of those into the panel. And we were thinking about that. We were thinking, what if we didn't replace the entire uh, Grumman Tiger instrument panel and we just swapped out the instruments for something that's, that's electronic flight instruments? Made a lot of sense. But then this is what, we, what happened in talking to Garmin and starting to do the dollars and cents. It, it makes sense if you're going to replace maybe your attitude indicator or, or a couple of instruments with a couple of GI-275s. But when you start to swap out three or four, you start to get into a price point where it's making more sense to go with a, a glass panel. And, and that's the conclusion that we came up with. So we ended up going with the Garmin G3X. But I, I think if we were just going to put in two or three, it's a great way to retrofit your aircraft and gain a lot of capability. All right. So I don't want to put you on the spot, but what's a ballpark price for uh, GI275? It's a, isn't around $4,000, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, I think they, they range from about 3900 to about 4100 depending on the configuration. Okay. But all in about that 4000 each and, and that's sort of uh, the progeny, if you will, of the, the, the G5, which is sort of a squarish multifunction instrument that preceded it. And it costs a little bit more money, too. And which is uh, what we have in the Grumman. So we, we went with the G5 as a backup attitude okay. indicator. And now there are other options uh, in the article. Jim uh, walks us through a lot of those, in, including options from UAVionics, the AV30C, which we've talked about before on the Hangar Talk podcast. And uh, several others, but I think that things are moving in the right direction for folks who are looking to replace their six-pack or go beyond the six-pack. Heck, I've, uh, you talk about my Cessna yeah. 140. Um, not everybody's aware it's a 1947 airplane with uh, you know classic instruments in there, and and I could put in one of these round gauges 
and it would fit and it wouldn't look odd. And I've, I've considered it myself. That's a classic airplane, like you said. And also, you know, pilots and owners do, you know, owners who are, are flying their own aircraft really have to keep an eye on the dollars and cents, but also vintage aircraft owners like yourself. And I formerly had an air coupe, you know, we want the aesthetics to look, you know, close. That's right. You know, can't have a square gauge in, in a classic panel. No, gotcha. All right, well, moving on from uh, from squares and rounds, let's talk a little bit about the bipartisan bill that you mentioned at the top of the show. Why don't you lead us through the bill that is going to help keep the FAA running during future funding lapses? So this is, a, a as you said, happily, a bipartisan uh, aviation funding stability act uh, introduced into the House. And so this is not brand new legislation. It turns out that this, a very similar bill, was introduced in 2019, uh, but was not passed. And and part of the issue uh, with that may have been, as as we discussed the intention of this, is to keep the FAA operating if there is a government shutdown. The first bill in 2019 did not have an end to how long the government could tap into the airport and airway trust fund to keep the FAA operating. It was open-ended. Okay. Potentially, partly for that reason, it was not passed. Well, now they're putting a cap on that. This legislation says that the FAA could run for 30 days. And so potentially by putting that limit on there so it's more known how long we would tap into that trust fund, I think there's a better chance of this passing. So, you know, aviators have often uh, worried about what would happen. Uh, We know when Congress slows down and doesn't you know, pr- present funding and, and pass that to keep the FAA going. And we have come right down to the wire many, many times. And AOPA is a strong advocate and has been very vocal about getting this done in the past. So overall, this sounds like a, a pretty good move at this point. And uh, something, uh, now basically one less thing that we'll have to worry about as aviators, perhaps. I think it's a fantastic idea, and and I think it's it's important not only for we as pilots. I think it's important for public trust, pilot, you know, pu- the public who wants to take uh, commercial flights or wants to fly on business aircraft to know, you know, to not feel like part of the FAA is not operating today would be really important. Gotcha. And speaking of really important, we're going to move on to another subject that we've covered before um, on the Hangar Talk podcast. But a bill would tag Legato for GPS interference costs and damage. And like I said, we've talked about this before, the 5G wireless network that Legato has uh, proposed. They haven't backed off. But the interesting thing, in my opinion, is that a couple of pilots are behind a, uh, a measure to, to figure out who's going to pay for all this. And it is uh, Senators Jim Inhofe and Tammy Duckworth with Mike Rounds. And uh, now these uh, aviators, Inhofe and Duckworth, have brought some some real aviation experience to this dilemma. Absolutely. I think they've been instrumental in, in getting Congress to understand, uh, well, and, and maybe the FCC as well, to, un- to understand the potential pitfalls of GPS signals unintentionally being blocked by the Legato network. And, and what this legend, legislation brings to bear that makes a lot of sense to me, maybe didn't think about it when the FCC first approved this and the FCC felt like they put a lot of, a lot of security around, around the rule that if, if there is some sort of interference that Legato would do whatever was necessary to correct it, but what was not addressed was who would pay for that. 
And this legislation is very clear that that would be Legato's responsibility to pay for any corrections that are necessary. So that's moving in the right direction to at least figure out who's going to fund whatever we need to do to clean all this stuff up. And uh, it remains to be seen what's going to unfold in the near future. But yet again, uh, AOPA and our advocacy department is all over this. And rest assured, we are we are the squeaky wheel. That's (laughs) right. We will not let this issue die. (laughs) Well, let's move on to the final subject we're going to cover right now before we bring on Megan. And it is some interesting news in the electric aircraft market. And we talked a little bit about that at the top of the show. What about the Bi Aerospace Electric Twin? This is a, a cabin class twin. And I'm going to ask you, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to give us a rundown of what is going on with the buy folks. Well, so this is this is follow-on to the 2C E-Flyer 2 that buy is, is developing right now and, and working on the prototype. And the the four-passenger E-Flyer 4 that has gained a lot of interest, now they're looking at the business market, which I think is is a is a really smart next move. And there are two fractional ownership uh, companies, Jetit in the United States and Jet Club, which is primarily operating in Europe, who have uh, expressed an interest in purchasing some of the some of these uh, eight seat twins from Buy Aerospace. The E Flyer Eight Hundred. Now, this is a relatively expensive aircraft. It's on par price wise. Ian and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago with the uh, with the King Airs. So uh, it's not an inexpensive aircraft, but on the other hand, it does offer a lot more efficiency. And if you are a fractional, if you will, you know, there is long run cost savings that could be involved in operating that E-Flyer 800. Yeah, exactly. They're looking at significant hourly cost reductions. They're saying something like one fifth the hourly cost of a Beechcraft King Air 260. And I think that's going to get you know, the, the notice of any fractional operator, even if the acquisition costs are a little bit higher up front, think about how many tens of thousands of hours these aircraft are going to operate over the long term. Absolutely. And speaking of other uh, aircraft operating over the long term, we, we've got to talk about Magni X and the two new powerful electric motors that were recently introduced, the Magni 350 and the Magni 650 power plants. Now, these are these are electric motors that are designed for uh, 450 or 850 shaft horsepower. And the theory is that it could speed the acceptance of, of electric power technology in the aviation market. So, Colin, if you recall, it's been over a year since the folks at Harbor Air and Magniex launched that electric beaver up in, uh, in Washington State. And uh, it's been pretty successful right right now. Now, that engine was uh, basically, for comparison, it was propelled by a 750 shaft horsepower Magni 500 motor. So we now have a a bit of a family of electric motors. What I think is interesting about about this is that, um, and I just didn't realize it until I started writing this story, but the motors operate at 2,300 RPM or less, but now they're designed to go up to 30,000 feet of altitude in unpressurized environments. That's pretty significant for a power plant. They're definitely expanding the range of where these these electric motors can be operated. You know, I, I love the fact that Harbor Air has been, you know, quietly proving out the concept 
of, of electrically powered aircraft flying passengers on short halt. Now, admittedly, on short hauls. Completely short, from island to island, basically. It's really short up there in the Puget Sound area. Yes, not, not even 30 minutes. We're talking like 15 minute flights often, but it's been working. And, and now we've got more and more electric motor options. And I know there's a lot of work on, on battery capacity, on the energy density of batteries and the weight of batteries. That's still the area that is constraining right. the long-term success, but there's a lot of work on it. I think the fact that Jetta and the Jet Club are, are interested enough to pony up money on on these concepts means that it's going to come to fruition and more money is going to be spent on development of the aircraft and of the battery packs. Well, I think that the future is going to unfold in a positive direction for all this, a no pun intended. And uh, now you also were telling me a little bit um, before the show that the magazine's uh, fixing to have a little bit of an update on some of the EV tall technology, which uses the electric motor technology. And before we uh, go to our special guest, can you give us a quick update on what you found in that department. Absolutely. This will actually be the third year we've been doing an annual update on electric aircraft and EV tolls. Just a fascinating time to be in, in general aviation or commercial aviation on this side, you know, along with drones and autonomous aircraft, the technology is really moving rapidly. There are a lot of players trying to develop a solution that is commercially viable. On the other hand, you know, there are a lot of players dropping out. There are a lot of promises being made that, that are not delivered. There, there are a lot of hangups that, that companies are, are finding. It's more complicated than they thought. So there's a bit of a shakeout occurring. And that's what we're really reporting on is what's the state of EV tall and electric aircraft today? What's the near-term future and what's the long-term future? So that's going to appear in the September issue of Pilot Magazine, written by our own Tom Horn. Well, we'll keep an eye out for the September issue of the APA Pilot Magazine and Tom Horn's update. And we're glad that he's on that beat because it does give us a look into the future. And he has definitely been covering it for the past few years with, uh, with great detail. Well, before we uh, move on too quickly here, let's bring on our special guest, Megan Huerta out of Florida. Megan is a uh, A&P apprentice and a student pilot, a winner of a uh, couple of scholarships here, and she has great things to tell us about getting into aviation from a young person's perspective. Welcome to Hangar Talk, Megan Huerta. And Hangar Talk listeners, y'all are in for a treat. We're going to talk to a student pilot, an A&P apprentice, and someone who was a refueler with the Coast Guard. So Megan Huerta, Colin, we're calling you from uh, Maryland. You're in Jacksonville. Take it away. Tell us who you are and how you got interested in flying. Okay. Well, I got interested in flying without any family experience in flying. So I'm the first in my family. Um, I'm also the first female veteran in my family, which is pretty awesome. As far as I know, the first Coast Guard veteran. So that's pretty cool. But I got into aviation when I was little from watching a lot of life flight pilots land in our backyard. Pretty much a very busy street, a lot of accidents. So I watch a lot of action flying. And from that, I guess I got inspired, aside from wanting to travel all the time. 
I was really big into traveling and I wanted to take myself there. So I wanted my own independence in flying and traveling. But that's exactly how I got started. So you got started because you saw um, life flights in and out of your backyard. Now, that was out in California, right? Because that's where you're from originally. Yes, exactly. That was in San Diego, California. Uh, There's a lot of wildfires there. So also a lot of firefighting type aviation as well, which is something I've talked about in my essay. But that was that was when I was about eight or nine. So I was pretty young being exposed to it. In California, there's so much more aviation opportunity out there. So it was pretty, pretty in your face when it came to uh, a way of life, I guess. But that's yeah, that's how I got started. And then from there, I, I continued to research. Okay, so now you told us there are no aviators in your family. And no Coast Guards, well, you're, I would say you're a Coast Guards woman, not a Coast Guard man, but you know, the times have to catch up to, to you. So now you also have a personal story about getting into aviation. You told me, we chatted briefly on the phone before the, the hangar talk recording, and I know that your brother and your sister also were life flighted. Tell us a little bit about that. I know it hits close to home, but um, I think our viewers and listeners will be interested. Right. Okay. Probably about the same time I was about 10 years old, my sister had a, what is called a brain aneurysm, something very hard to predict, very hard to cure, but she had to be sent to a hospital, but they were not able to help her medically there. So she was lifelighted from that hospital to a more prestige hospital with a little bit more research and and knowledge on the the problem. So she was lifelighted from there. I actually was able to watch her life flight from the car driving from one hospital to another. So that was pretty, pretty hard to take in, but very powerful in the way that there's just so much power behind that, I guess. It is, it makes you realize what you can do with aviation, uh, what it can bring you to. Although she did not live through that experience, it still was very powerful to see what aviation could help in terms of medically and, and emergencies. So that really started steering you in that right in that direction. Having watching your sister uh, be life flighted helped steer you a little bit more towards aviation and and maybe kind of focus you in on what you could do with your life in the long run. Right, and something that helps other people, something that's not necessarily um, leisure flying for myself, but something that could give somebody else you know a chance at life or an opportunity to come home to their family. My brother, like I was saying, was life flighted from a terrible skateboard accident. And so since he was unconscious, they had to life flight him to a hospital. Fortunately, he was able to survive that accident. But that was another instance where that came in hand in my own family. So it was very, very moving for me. Yeah. And so that helps steer you towards aviation. I should let our um, listeners know that another reason we're talking to you today is just a couple of weeks after the Women in Aviation online event, the virtual conference that that Women in Aviation had. And so the Way Group delivered to you an AOPA Student Pilot Scholarship for $3,000 to help you with your flight training studies. And now that's kind of coming around on sort of the back end, because when you started your flight training, you started in a helicopter, right? Right. Yes, exactly. Uh, that was my my goal in aviation was helicopter flying. And it still is. Definitely still my dream job is flying for EMS for in helicopters. But it is also way more expensive. So when I started in it, I was very young, fresh out of high school, not knowing how expensive it was until I ran out of money. But I started in, in rotary wing 
and then became very expensive and decided to do the smart way and save money and, and do more research on how to really fund my entire license versus as long as I can, you know, stand for. But, but I did start in rotary and then I, I eventually switched to fixed wing to save some money. And then hopefully when I get my fixed wing, it'll be an add on and I'll continue in rotary than fixed wing. Yeah, you could run out of money pretty quickly starting with a helicopter, you know, with helicopter training. I have only had a few hours myself, but the money goes pretty quick that way. It goes a lot further in a fixed wing, uh, like a Cessna 150 or 152, which I think is what you were training in here in Jacksonville. You've moved across the country. I'm guessing you moved to Jacksonville. The Coast Guard might have had something to do with it. Maybe, maybe not. I'm just guessing. Yeah, definitely. So I was stationed in San Francisco Bay Area in Alameda on a Wenzel, which is a national security cutter, uh, about a 418 foot ship. So pretty, pretty big, but um, I was stationed there and I got out in February of 2019, sort of recently, but I met uh, my boyfriend there in the Coast Guard on a ship and we were both doing the same thing. Uh, he was also in engineering. And so when I got out, he was still in and he's an electrician. And so we moved here together. Uh, saves me a lot of money on flight training in Florida. So that's definitely a very good benefit moving here. But also I love the lifestyle of the South and, and country living. But that's why I moved here. And so now I fly uh, Cessna 150. But besides that, in the Coast Guard, I was the, what they call an aviation fuel queen. So it's a type of qualification where you do maintenance on aviation fuel. You do the fueling of the helicopters that land aboard our ship. Some helicopters we kept in our hangars, some of them from different countries, from the Navy as well, we'd, we'd use those. But I was in charge of the fuel. So I would do the training on how to fuel and how to do what you would say is fueling with a helicopter that is tied to your ship, but not on the ship. So in-flight refueling, if that makes sense. A lot of training on that. And then, of course, I would say a lot of that comes with uh, firefighting training. Oh, that's, hey, I forgot to ask about that. Yeah, and you're right, because that kind of ties it back into the firefighting back uh, that you were telling us about back home in California as well. Now, you also have to know how to test the fuel. You have to know how the machines work or don't work. You have to troubleshoot problems as if it was an, an airplane engine because there's a lot of you know electrical motors involved and things like that. So is that what got you interested in being a mechanic? Yes, that is exactly right. I worked in a auxiliary shop, a lot of engineering. We did a lot of auxiliary equipment on the ship. So aside from the engines, a lot of what you called reverse osmosis, creating potable water, obviously the fueling for both the small boats and the aircraft. Um, so that really kind of dug me deep into knowing that I can do mechanical things, even though I wasn't necessarily raised to do those things. But it's just, a, it's a fun environment. The shop kind of environment is always challenging and rewarding and definitely a lot of learning when it comes to your self-growth, obviously mechanically, and then, of course, just challenging yourself to do things you've never done before. But that's what got me into engineering and mechanical work. It made me feel comfortable doing that because it's, you know, a shop environment is, is the same almost anywhere, whether it's in aircraft or cars or boats, things like that. Yeah, so I'm going to uh, follow up on something that you said just a second ago, and I think this is important for other folks to learn about, and especially young folks, especially young folks who might be female, which is you said you weren't raised to do those kind of things. Now, listen, we got to break the mold here some kind of way and let folks know that it's okay 
to be, you know, not a male and to be a mechanic and to be a pilot and be, you know, an aviator. And I know you've got some very, very altruistic long range goals, which we'll get to in a minute, but tell us about breaking the mold and about, you know, how different fields can be opened up to, to a diverse group of folks. Okay. So like I said, I was not raised in a engineering or mechanical family, really. My dad did raise me. He was very headstrong about teaching me how to challenge myself, how to be strong mentally, physically, know how to do things that I can't have a man do for me. But he taught me how to shoot guns and go hiking and surround my own and be somebody that's able to do anything, whether or not I'm a boy or girl. But that's definitely a key factor in how I was raised. Not necessarily the fact that I was raised to work on my own bikes, or my, mo- my own motorcycles, I guess, and my own cars, but just the mentality of, of being well-rounded and knowing how to do things, whether or not I'm comfortable doing them. But that's definitely a key factor in, in, how, in how I got into engineering and mechanical work. Well, let me, let me bring it back home for just a quick second here. Now, you brought something up a second ago, talked about working on your motorcycle and things like that. I, I want folks to know that now you're still pretty young. You're like 24 years old. Now, you recently had to sell one of your motorcycles to pay for flight training. So hats off to you for selling that Suzuki. I know that was hard to do. You and I talked a little while ago, and you know I ride a Honda Valkyrie, a big old cruiser bike. But it's hard to do when you are giving up something that you love, but you know that there's an end game and you really have your eyes set on the prize. So um, hats off to you for that, like I said. And also I want folks to know that you've really reached out um, in a variety of ways. You make artwork and you sell artwork. So tell us a little bit about that. You're putting a lot of financial things together to keep that flight training mission on task. Right. Yeah. So I haven't been a... I want to say profound painter, but I found painting and doing mixed media work as a way to make money, side money for flying. I have a piggy bank just like anybody would because flight training is so expensive. And I've done anything from selling my amateur somewhat in a way artwork, but I've also done things like painted motorcycle helmets and I've washed airplanes. I've tried anything in the book from dog walking to babysitting, um, especially babysitting other female pilots that have children. But I've done a lot of small jobs like that to just put in the piggy bank and have that piggy bank set for flight training because it's it's hard not to throw it at the bills and, and things that you'd, you'd spend it on. But definitely artwork is not the easiest way to do it, but it's it's a, it's a route. Well, you brought up a couple other cool ideas, you know, washing airplanes, cause that gets you into the airport environment. And I didn't even think about babysitting for fellow pilots, especially female pilots. That is pretty darn smart. How did you even come up with that? I'm involved in, of course, the women aviation group, uh, the local chapter that just started as well as the 99s group. And we do have quite a few female airline pilots or corporate pilots that are females that have children. Uh, especially um, infants and, and things that where they can't always have a husband take care of the child because it's hard to do when you have such a time-consuming job. But it's definitely it's definitely a route to go with. I guess, I mean, it's another thing that goes along with it is volunteering in groups like that. Any kind of volunteer work is the perfect way to get your foot in the door to do things that can get you a few hours or a few training lessons. Definitely volunteering for local women groups like 
the 99s in women aviation, they are, it just brings you to more opportunities where you can volunteer until a point where you can be paid to do this, do those things. And I want, I want folks to know that if they wanted to buy your artwork, you might have to make some more, but when you get some more up, they could find it on Facebook at Fem Art Gallery, and that's a gallery in Jacksonville, right? Right. So that is a, um, a nonprofit organization that's female artists, but we do have exhibits pretty often. I don't want to say right now it's a little bit difficult because of COVID that a lot of our events are virtual, slowly getting back to in-person exhibits, but definitely there's plenty of artwork for myself and other female artists that that have their own artwork for sale. Now, look, look, you also have a really cool idea for um, for teaching, for learning, for for folks to kind of learn about aviation through a different way. And I know your in your end game goal is to not only be an emergency medical services pilot, but also to own your own flight school with helicopter and fixed wing training. And you were talking a little bit about this to me via a phone call about how folks can visualize their dreams, um, but but using creative learning techniques for some of the concepts that we cross with aviation, something that's either visual or aural, tactile learners, people learn in different ways. Tell me a little bit about that and, and how did that occur to you to think about teaching that way? Well... Like I've mentioned before in my in my scholarship essay, I worked at the Boys and Girls Club in California, and I did a lot of programs that involved a lot of artistic methods of bringing children out of their own shell. I did a creative writing program, which brought a lot of a lot of the youth to kind of expand the way they think of writing and literature. So I guess that's where it started. So I know that there's plenty of struggles I've had because I'm definitely a visual learner. A lot of it has to do with the art that I make, but because of that, it's a lot harder for me to, I guess, imagine mechanical uh, mechanical things. It's hard for me to understand something if I have not seen how it works or put my hands on it, um, which is why I'm an A&P apprentice. It helps me understand what I'm flying. And it also helps me understand if something were to go wrong, how I can counteract that or troubleshoot what could be going wrong with my aircraft. I'm one of those types that want to know everything about something so that I could be a better pilot, be a better mechanic, be a better well-rounded person. But in my own school, one day in the far future, I really hope to have something like weekly seminars where people are able to put hands on aircraft tools, aircraft parts, and be able to visually understand what is in their airplane or what is under their cowling. Also too, is it's hard to sort of understand how radios work or frequencies. Electrical engineering is definitely a big one that's hard for a lot of people to learn about. But if we are able to have seminars where they can compare certain things to fields that they do understand, which I've seen a lot, a lot of things related to body anatomy, relating to mechanics, so that they can understand how things work in a different in a different setting versus reading from a textbook. But that that's my end goal is to have uh, multiple lessons and I guess spokespersons talk about things that are harder to understand, but in a different way, a different method. It sounds like you're a far better mechanic than I am. I, I was uh, just replacing the burners on my gas grill yesterday, and I actually had to do the whole repair maneuver twice because they 
They got installed upside down the first time. Then the cross burner got installed upside. I didn't have any instructions or anything. I didn't have like a maintenance shop book. But I, I hear what you're saying about hands-on, and I'm just getting a little scared about taking the six carburetors off of my Honda Valkyrie and sending them off for service, so, knowing that I had to do the gas grill <laughs> twice, you know? Right. But um, but you're right. People learn in different ways. Oh, and, yeah. And, uh, different ways. And hands-on, it, it really, as a pilot, you want to know what is going on under that cowling, what the control cables are doing. You know, if, if you push A, what happens to B and things like that? Right, right, exactly. So tell me a little bit about your apprentice work now as an ANP in Jacksonville. What's a regular day like for you, Megan? Well, I work at Corporate Aircraft Maintenance. I have to throw that out there. They're at Craig Airport. Day to day, we have anything from regular aircraft we work on all the time, from Cessna 150s to King Airs to beach jets, anything that's able to fit in our hangar, but general aviation. We do anything from annuals to basic 50-hour oil changes. We do even phasing inspections on the bigger aircraft. But honestly, it could, every day is different. Every day could be um, multiple oil changes in a row. Other days, it can be troubleshooting something that I've never touched before, but it, it's, it's all, it all depends on the aircraft you're working on. A lot of messy work. I must say that working on aircraft versus my motorcycle or car, though, is a lot cleaner work, believe it or not. Um, but it's all generally the same. Tools are different. The same kind of uh, shop environment. Uh, shop tools are a little different. But it's all very challenging. And I always try to jump into bigger projects rather than smaller ones, just because I like I like asking a lot of questions and annoying my higher ups with uh a lot of questions and, and how to figure something out by myself. But, but yeah, it's, it's, it's different every day. Well, it sounds like you might have some pretty good mentors over there at Craig field. If you want to give a shout out to anyone in particular, you know, go for it. But you, but that brings up another point, which is as an aviator, as a young aviator, we all need mentors. Is there someone that you look up to that's helped you out with this kind of endeavor, either a and P side or flying side? Definitely. In the AMP worlds, there is a man named Mark there. He has been at the airport for something along the lines of 30 plus years. So he lives and breathes all these aircraft. He can name any part number off the top of his head, which is uh, pretty remarkable. But I definitely look up to him the most. Uh, he is always willing to answer any question I have, no matter how silly. And if I mess it up, uh, we both laugh it off. And he's so profound with knowing so much about aircraft maintenance. He is sort of like an aviation maintenance god, I guess. But he's he's definitely very, very impressive with uh, anything I ask, he has the answer to. And anything I've done, he's done at least 50,000 times before. But he is, um, he is probably one of my biggest mentors in A&P world. Flying-wise, it's hard to narrow that down. There's a lot of aviation, well, there's a lot of pilots that I look up to. I'd have to say Joel Weiner. He's a pretty well-known pilot in the Jacksonville community. Uh, he's called the mayor of Craig because he's so he's involved with anything aviation, anything with banners, um, flight instruction, charter flying. Um, but he is he's pretty pretty well known and he's such a good guy. Very good person. 
very willing to help and always ask how my flight training is doing, but he's definitely uh, somebody I look up to. I appreciate you giving a shout out to both Mark and Joel. Hey, do you think at one point in the future that you might be a mentor to other people as well? I believe so. I love teaching and I love youth and I really hope that I can make a big impact on uh, female pilots as well as male pilots in the AMP world as well as in flying. Sounds good. Now, I know you've got some plans for the future that you're trying to uh, formulate. If you um, have time, um, can you tell me if you're planning to reach out to some of the other uh, community members, um, like some of the nonprofits that you've worked with before? The Boys and Girls Club of America, I think, is one that you said you worked out. I'm sorry, that you worked with in California and maybe some some public schools, uh, anything like that. Right. Yeah. So currently right now I'm in the works of working with the Girl Scouts. So we have a, um, well, they have an aviation badge system from any age, from the Brownies to the ambassadors. So right now we're working on um, creating events to pretty much teach anything from basic aerodynamics to mechanical work and opportunities in aviation mechanic wise, as well as flying um, to young girls. So that's going to be a project I'm working on right now. Um, as well as Boys and Girls Club, I would like to do kind of the same thing, have a program set out so that we can expose young girls to aviation, anything from mechanical work to airline uh, flying. But I want it to be an option and something that could be an idea for them, because when I was little, it was never an idea, uh, especially if you don't have any family in aviation. It's very hard to pay for flying and understand how to get involved initially. But definitely, that's those are two things I want to get get started here in Jacksonville. Well, you bring up some sage points on that, Megan, because, you know, if you're not exposed to aviation as a youngster, then how would you even know that there was a career there for you? And, you know, we do know about technicians and we know about pilots, but gosh, let's think about it. You know, you could be a meteorologist. You could be an airport manager. You could be someone who manages the, the flight school operation. You could work in air traffic control. There are so many jobs that, that folks could pursue, but they need someone like you to help them get started to even know what's out there. Right. Yeah. And that's something I, I brought up when I worked at the Boys and Girls Club. Um, a lot of the youth there had never met a female pilot or even anybody in aviation. Uh, so I definitely made it apparent that, hey, I'm doing this and hey, I'm going to be a pilot one day, even though I'm 18 years old when I was speaking to these uh, young kids, um, to let them know that people like me are out there. And if they see me doing it, it's very easy for them to ask questions of how can I do this myself? And then from there on, it's it's a long trip and a long journey, but it's it's all very rewarding. That sounds good. Look, I know we've uh, we've taken a lot of your time. We're about to wrap it up, but a couple of closing thoughts on the matter. So put on your uh, let's stare into that crystal ball for a minute, if you will, Megan. And in a few years from now, tell me what you're going to be doing and and the name of the flight school that you're going to run. Um. Well, in a few years, I will definitely have my AMP. Um, certificate. And I will definitely have my private license, instrument rating. I'm not sure when I will be transferring or adding on my rotary, but I'll definitely be in the works of doing that. And then hopefully by then I'll have a good idea of what I have in the basket, what I'm able to do, and then continue on. I'm going to try to get in the air as much as possible as always. And 
hopefully be in the works of going to school to get my degree in aviation business so that I could own my own flight school and have a, a flight school that is maintained well in the maintenance shop, in the instruction side, as well as um, outside learning and, and bringing other groups into the into the school to make it better, to make it into a an environment where um, chapters can have events and have lessons and have um, anything they, they need in, in a flight school. Basically, keep the doors open and have a welcoming environment so that other folks could kind of follow in your footsteps and get exposed to aviation, bring the community in, so to speak. Right, you're right, right, exactly. It shouldn't just be um, anybody who's there as a flight student or instructor. It could be anybody who wants to volunteer for our events or even um, even have like a, a, a room set for working on scholarships so that people are able to make make it work for themselves financially. That sounds great. I know you'll do it, Megan, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Any final thoughts, throw them at me and uh, let us know how folks could find you or find your artwork one more time via the Facebook site. Okay. Um, well, my artwork will, is on Instagram. Um, I don't know if I should, should I spell it out as like what it is on Instagram then? Sure. Spell it out. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So... <laughs> It's my last name, which is H-U-E-R-T-A underscore L-I-N-I. On Instagram. Yes. All right. Very cool. Well, I might just have to see what kind of artwork you have there. I've got an 18-year-old daughter, and she's uh, she's pretty artistic. So we'll see what we can do about sharing that. If I could, if I could break her away from her Snapchatting and that kind of thing. <laughs> but look, it sounds like you're a great... Uh, Great, great mentor for other uh, young people. And of course, we wish you all the best, especially with that scholarship that'll help you get going a little bit more um, with your flight training. And I'm, I'm close to the Cessna 150 crowd myself. I'm in a, a Westminster Aerobats club. We have a 152 Cessna Aerobat. Oh, wow. So our lives parallel that way a little bit. So maybe, maybe I'll have to fly that, that 152 Cessna down to Jacksonville and we'll go for a flight one day. Yeah, that would be awesome. I do want to say thank you to Women Aviation, um, the chapter that I'm part of, for making such a great opportunity, as well as AOPA for giving me the scholarship. I'm definitely very grateful and extremely thrilled to continue my training and make you guys proud. Well, we appreciate your time on Hangar Talk. Thank you very much for being such a good guest and for opening your heart to other people, and especially young people, you know, in the aviation world as you continue in your training yourself. And I know good things will come to you, Megan. Thank you again for joining us on Hangar Talk. Thank you very much. Well, that was fascinating information coming out of a young pilot, Colin, and I'm, I'm really hoping that Megan goes far with that. I hate the fact that she had to sell her motorcycle uh, to make up for some flight training funds, but she does have artwork for sale, and she's got a good positive look at the future. I think we need more folks like that. I agree. I mean, I think that the $3,000 scholarship was well-deserved. Uh, impressed that she she sold what was obviously a treasured possession in the motorcycle, but it's for the greater good. I give her a ton of credit, you know, at her age that she's got this future so mapped out. I mean, to be a CFI, uh, you know, and to... Um, 
and to own a flight school and to be an A&P and, and to have that vision of what she wants to do down the road. Really, we need uh, the future generation who's going to run today's businesses and tomorrow's businesses to do exactly what she's doing. I give her a ton of credit. And wish her the best. No, it sounds good. We do wish her all the best. Well, look, we wish Megan all the best, but that's all the time we have for this episode of the Hangar Talk Podcast. Colin, I wanted to thank you for sitting in for Ian, who is on vacation this week. Well, thank you, David. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> I was going to say, I hope it wasn't too hard. I thought we did pretty good. Uh, but as we close out the show, uh, we always give credit to our ace audio editor, Austin Hansen. And uh, as folks know, uh, they can tell by my southern voice, this is David Tulis uh, here. We're glad to be here with y'all. And don't forget, you could find us at aopa.org slash hangar talk or wherever you get your podcast via Apple or Google. Colin, thanks again for joining us. We hope we can do it again. All right. Thanks, David. Have a great day. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.